Welcome to Indo-Pacific Affairs, a podcast devoted to tackling the wicked problems facing policymakers, academicians, military leaders, and others in the Indo-Pacific region. Affiliated with Air University's Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs, the Consortium of Indo-Pacific Researchers, and the Air Command and Staff College's eSchool, the podcast features interviews with the top names in academia, government, and think tanks from around the region. Disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed or implied in this podcast are those of the participants and should not be construed as carrying the official sanction of the Department of Defense, Department of the Air Force, Air Education and Training Command, Air University, or other agencies or departments of the U.S. government or their international equivalents. In this episode, the eSchool's Dr. Jared McKinney interviews Dr. Carrie Brown, a highly renowned British academician, author, and sinologist specializing in Chinese history, international relations, and politics. Dr. Brown is currently a professor of Chinese studies and director of the Lao China Institute at King's College London. Dr. Brown, I want to start with this question. Few American journalists now report in China, and we're living in an age of misinformation and disinformation. Where would you direct my listeners to look for reliable information about China? And what are some tips in assessing credibility of claims about what's happening in China today? Yeah, I mean, some of the standard media, like The Economist and Financial Times, uh, they still have some correspondence in China. And I think that their uh, reporting is usually balanced and it's fact-driven. And I think that they are able to see not only the kind of problems in China, but also some of the uh, more positive things. So uh, I think they're worth we're looking at. Um, there's a thing actually from the, uh, I think it's the Hoover Institute at Stanford University, um, the China Leadership Monitor. It's actually edited by a, an old friend of mine, Mingxing Pei, uh, Pei Mingxing, and it's actually usually a collection. I think it's issued every month by different scholars uh, of material on elite politics in China, military issues. I think Barry Norton, uh, who's also lectured at your um, institute, I believe, uh, talks about the Chinese economy. Um, I think they are very user-friendly for policymakers because they're written in a very crisp and direct style. And then there's more sort of technical things, I suppose, the China Journal and China Quarterly. They're not real time. I mean, they're often, you know, kind of looking at things that may have happened in the last few years rather than immediately. But I think that they give a sense of perspective. There's also very, very good online sites. Uh, I think Politico, uh, a website, a kind of news service, they run a very good uh, kind of overview of China politics, uh, edited by a guy called J- David Vertime. There's the China Media Project, which does look at Chinese uh, kind of uh, political language and how it shapes the Chinese messaging. Uh, so there is some really, really good stuff. Um, there's also a lot of speculative stuff, and there's, of course, a lot of material issued by the Chinese government itself. Some of that from Xinhua is very um, important because it is the Chinese government's voice. But I mean, the problem is, of course, also that it's the Chinese government's voice, so it has a very clear intention. Uh, but in you know, kind of issues like Chinese government policy, that's the place that you would look. If you can interpret it well, it's relatively unproblematic. Thanks for that. Um, second question. You're the author, among other books, of The World According to Xi, Everything You Need to Know About the New China. So I wonder if you might tell me about the new China and 
how the new China perhaps has changed or evolved since you published this book. Yeah, I mean, the Xi Jinping leadership since 2012 has been a very nationalistic one. And I think the first thing to really understand about this China is the enormous sense of historic destiny. You know, I mean, history matters in China as it does everywhere. But for China, I think their modern history has been a very oppressive one. They've kind of suffered at the hands of, uh, you know, the Japanese during the Sino-Japanese War. And then before that, under colonization, with the British in particular, and I think the Communist Party uh, believes that they've been the liberators. That's the way that they talk about it. But they have um, ended up with a country that has the world's second biggest economy and that in many ways is really succeeding. China has something like 30,000 kilometers more of uh, high-speed train rail. Uh, it has you know, built up enormous amounts of infrastructure over the last 30, 40 years and it has created this enormous economy. And I think this is a really key thing that, you know, that economic achievement is something that does make people very proud. But on top of that, I think the Communist Party has been quite skillful, uh, inevitably so, I suppose, at taking nationalistic messages and really basically using that as a source of its legitimacy. So for the outside world, I think there's obviously lots of issues about that. China's nationalistic tone seems threatening and problematic, for Chinese people, I guess, this is the thing that they listen to when the Communist Party speaks. They're not interested in Marxism-Leninism any more than most people in the outside world are interested in listening to political kind of dogma. But they do like the message of China now being in a place of great power, has a huge economy that people respect. And ironically, even the fact that places like the United States and Europe now see China as their major strategic problem is almost like a kind of compliment to China. You know, the fact is it matters so much that people do have to factor it into their lives, whether they like it or not. So I think these are things that lie at the heart of kind of China's modern uh, identity and its, its modern uh, mission. If I could follow up on the ideology point that you referenced, um, Xi Jinping has this slogan, Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. Do you think this means anything in particular? And uh, if so, what? Well, it depends to whom. So to people in the party elite, it means there is a unified ideology and they'd better know about it. They'd better at least act like they believe it. Um, it's making them really sign up to a common framework. I mean, there's no uh, sort of notion now that as a party official or a high-level party leader, you can kind of start getting innovative or entrepreneurial in your ideology you've got to be very disciplined this is an age of you know kind of real discipline for most people that sort of phrase uh, which i think has been put in the party constitution now uh since 2017 you know the idea of xi jinping thought uh the socialism with chinese characteristics for the new era i think all it means is that the party has a mission to make china great to make china great again as it were and this is like the way that they're going to do it. They're going to do it with the political system they've got, and they're going to do it in the Chinese way. And I mean, again, the world outside can have a view on this. Um, but I think for the Communist Party, it can certainly say to Chinese people, look, if you don't have us, you might not like our ideology, and you might not like this sort of, you know, socialism with Chinese characteristics. But the alternative is to go the route that Russia went, and that didn't end well for 
you know, many economic and social reasons in Russia, or, you know, completely collapse. You know, these are not easy options. There's no easy alternative because the Communist Party has so many levers of power and is so integrated into society. So I think that kind of nationalistic message, to come back to that again, is really crucial for the party's mission and its legitimacy. Barry Naughton, whom we mentioned earlier, actually wrote an article called Is China Socialist? a few years ago. And he sort of analyzed this question on various conventional metrics and found that the Chinese, by and large, aren't particularly socialist. As the century moves on towards 2049, could you imagine China becoming actually socialist? And what do you think this would look like? I mean, I think uh, in our political discourse, I, I think China is probably quite conservative. Um, and it's interesting to see when I ask my students, you know, who would you vote for in a British election? They're often very supportive of the Conservative Party. I mean, and, um, you know, the Conservative parties uh, and presumably, you know, the kind of more uh, central or right wing parties in, in America. Uh, they attract China because they're meant to be more closely linked to business. And, you know, they're more kind of entrepreneurial. I, I mean, at least that's the sort of perception. And I think it's very strange that China has a, ostensibly this communist socialist system. But I think most people's values in the People's Republic today, I would see as being pretty entrepreneurial, pretty keen on having a small state pretty comfortable about the idea of low taxation, uh, pretty comfortable about the idea of, you know, having a business really sort of given a free hand um, and almost Reaganite in their idea that, you know, uh, the government coming along and sort of saying, hey, we're here to help is a very terrifying thing. Uh, what the Communist Party has done, though, is completely control certain key areas. So I guess, you know, the, the system now in China is socialist in part. But that's the most crucial part, you know, the commanding economies, uh, the, the state enterprises uh, and key areas of policy decision making. They belong to the party. But other areas, there is surprising freedom and scope. One of the things I've wondered is that whether over the coming decades, an increasing emphasis on providing social services for an aging population will compete with China's goal to have a strong first-rate military. And uh, I wonder if that's particularly true given relatively low levels of taxation in China that don't allow a lot of room for distributing large amounts of resources in various locations. What's your take on that? Well, I, some argue that in fact the problem in China is not uh, too much government, it's too little. And actually, if you look at the number of real officials, you know, people who work for the central and local bureaucracy, um, it's, it's proportionally very small. I mean, I think in France, something like a quarter of the working population are, you know, kind of government employees up to a point. In the UK, it's about 15, 16%. I think it's about the same in America. Um, in China, uh, it's, it's under 10%. I mean, it's actually much less than 10%. I think it's, if you take all of the state enterprise employees, um, you probably, and you know, they're not really the sort of orthodox state employees that, uh, you know, we'd normally, normally think of. You've probably got a figure of 60, 65 million in a population of 
working population probably of about uh, 800, 900 million. This is not a big figure. This is not a big proportion. And I mean, you just alluded to the tax system. I mean, a lot of tax revenue in China comes from state enterprises, not from personal taxation. So it's very different to, uh, you know, the UK or America, where you probably find that most central and local revenue comes from individual taxation. So this is a sort of strange environment. Um, the issue, I suppose, is that at the moment, um, the central and local state, this very centralized fiscal system, they're able to kind of find the resources they need from mostly state enterprises and private enterprises, really corporate tax. That's how the whole kind of thing runs, but with socialist characteristics. And, you know, at some point, it's going to be more difficult. Uh, you've got very wealthy middle class in places like Shanghai and urban centers, and that is going to increase. That number is really going to rapidly increase. And, I mean, it's going to be hard for the government not to tax these people. <laughs> they're going to look at the money they're making and think, hold on, why are you not contributing more? There's also a lot of subsidies, uh, subsidies of, you know, kind of uh, utilities, um, water, you know, gas, electricity. These are not marketized really in China. That will also need, I presume, to be a reformed at some point. The question hanging over all of this is, at what point China's taxation rates will be such that you suddenly get what I think Thomas Paine, you know, they called the, the sort of issue of, you know, no uh, taxation without representation and whether the Chinese can in other areas, as they have in other areas, create a bespoke model that means that you have responsibility with Chinese characteristics, which means no votes. That's going to be quite a big challenge, but China has managed to get through bigger challenges, so this is possible. It's not something you can easily dismiss at the moment. If you read ancient Confucian political writings, there's an intense focus on the government serving the people and being people-centered. Um, is your interpretation that the modern Communist Party is people-centered? So it's certainly since the 2000s talked a lot about this idea of, you know, uh, being people centric and making people the kind of key, you know, key issue. Um, there is a sense that the government needs to look after people. And although the iron rice bowl, as it was called, you know, the cradle to grave welfare system has sort of been dismantled, uh, you know, and the healthcare system in China is very fragmentary. But I mean, there's now a universal, sort of semi-universal uh, healthcare insurance scheme. Um, you know, despite these things, uh, there's still big, big spaces in China where you can fall between the cracks. And the assumption is that family networks or personal networks will will, will look after you. Um, it's not unknown for people to have health problems where. They just have to scrape the money together to be able to pay, you know, doctors because there's no sort of university accessible system. Uh, this sort of patriarchal view of people, though, is a bit sort of um, difficult because China's a modernized and modernizing country. And I think the Communist Party in the beginning was dead set against this Confucian hierarchy. And now it's talking about traditional Chinese values. and It seems all of that has come back. I mean, I think uh, most people probably, as I said earlier in China, do probably are quite conservative with a small c. And, uh, you know, conservatism in, conservatism in China is really Confucianism. 
So I think it's quite shrewd of the party to sort of pick on a Confucian, you know, serve the people and look after the people. Um, the problem is, of course, as I said earlier, the government is already very stretched. And how will it really be able to look after people when their expectations are getting higher and higher and higher? One of the real tricks of speaking of China or Chinese identity is identifying what exactly that means. You know, some of my students think maybe if we just read Sun Tzu, then we'll understand the Chinese. Or maybe if we just read Mao, then we'll understand what it means to be Chinese. How do you conceive of the interplay of past and present and maybe even future and what it means to be Chinese? What is this identity and what are the different constitutive parts of it? Well, that is a massive question. Uh, I mean, one thing to obviously bear in mind is that, uh, you know, Chinese literary um, you know, history is, is one of the longest in the world, maybe the longest in the world. So there is a vast amount of literature to think about. And I mean, a lot of that is available in English and the ideas in that, uh, whether they're Buddhist or Taoist and, you know, in recent times, kind of uh, communist um, you know, these, these are sort of, and Confucianist, obviously, these uh, are kind of, you know, really worth orientating oneself against. So, you know, to read Confucius and Sun Tzu, to read Mao, these are not silly things. I mean, they're still important. They're like the core, core, core text, really. Um, but also to acknowledge that, you know, China has been quite open to ideas from the West, for instance, Marxism, obviously, and capitalism. And so there's a great hybridity uh, and that, you know, the more kind of you read of Chinese texts and how they kind of create this sense of identity, the more hybrid you realize it is. We also have to, I guess, remember that, uh, you know, China to be Chinese itself is, you know, like saying that you're European or that, you know, you're American in as much as it embraces Canada and Latin America, you know, it's very diverse. And, uh, you know, China has an incredibly um, you know, sort of wide group of ethnic minorities. I mean, officially 55, including the Han majority makes it 56. But even within that group, uh, you know, the Han majority, it's actually very diverse. I mean, there are very big differences between Southern and Northern Chinese and you know, food style, lifestyle, and, and even kind of sometimes language, um, although the written script is the same. And the 55 ethnic minorities is a very arbitrary figure. It could have been 400 or even more. It was just something that was decided in the 1950s, you know, to sort of make things manageable. So diversity really is the heart uh, of China and it's the heart of Chinese identity. And I think anyone that tries to sort of make sense of China without understanding that diversity and think of it as a homogenous, you know, very uniform place is going to miss fundamental things about what China is and what makes it run and tick. Going back to one of these ancient sages, Mengzi said that heaven does not speak, but, but reveals the mandate through actions and affairs. And uh, what do you, do you think the mandate of heaven still matters in contemporary China? And, and if so, how do you think it's revealed today? Up to a point, I mean, legitimacy certainly matters in contemporary China. And the Communist Party of China is very aware of needing to have sources of legitimacy. And that was once upon a time, revolutionary sources of legitimacy, 
Now um, it has become economic and performative sources of legitimacy and also nationalistic, uh, uh, you know, kind of objectives and aims. Broadly, you know, making China great again. Um, but I, I think, uh, you know, the kind of ways in which these ancient ideas do resurface in new language is striking. Uh, the kind of idea that monks, uh, amongst us, some, you know, kind of uh, reportedly wrote about, um, of, you know, kind of needing to do things rather than just say them. Actually, in the 1980s, Deng Xiaoping, when asked, well, did he believe in communism? I think a reporter said something like, well, it's not a matter of belief, it's a matter of doing. And, you know, it's just common sense. You know, this is an ideology that works for us. And because it works, we believe in it. And if it didn't work, we wouldn't believe in it. And I think that practicality and pragmatism has always really been there. Uh, Mao, at the beginning, probably was quite pragmatic and not that ideological. And then for very specific reasons and complex reasons, then he changed. But really, even Xi Jinping, I would say, is probably a believer in Marxism-Leninism because it's, for China, an ideology that works for them. I don't know whether they would think it was universal or something that was universally true, but it is universally true for China. So this is a very subtle, but I think at the moment, very workable approach for it. Hmm. One thing I've always wondered when I think about the mandate of heaven in contemporary China is if it still mattered, how did Mao not lose it during the Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution? Because according to the ancient texts, um, you know, it, he, he sounded like just the sort of person who ought to have been overthrown, but wasn't. Well, firstly, I think for the vast majority of Chinese, they were untouched by the tragic events in his uh, period in power. Uh, I mean, I say it sounds strange to say, but the Cultural Revolution, for instance, uh, while it did impact on many, you know, many millions, maybe, you know, 100 million or more, well, that was out of a population of 800 million. And for the countryside, you know, where 90% of the people lived then, Mao was revered. And, uh, you know, the country that he came to power in 1949 had an average life expectancy of 32 it had, you know, zero infrastructure, basically. It had entrenched poverty, and it was obviously completely decimated by the Sino-Japanese War and then the Civil War. So even by 1965-66, literacy, life expectancy, you know, human development for the vast majority of people had improved. And, you know, when he died, uh, you know, China was a transformed place, but nothing like the way it's been transformed since. I suppose the second thing is that, in a way, he did lose the mandate towards the end of his life. I mean, in 1976, in April, uh, to commemorate the kind of recent death of, you know, the long-term Premier Zhou Enlai, there was a sort of small uprising in Tiananmen Square. And although it was repressed, uh, this massive earthquake in Tangshan, which killed about 250,000 people, uh, you know, kind of, I think, in the middle of that year, was seen as being deeply symbolic. You know, this was the end of an era. And so, you know, I think Mao kind of um, was a sort of, the ideas of Maoism, you know, class struggle and utopianism, I think they died in 1976. Um, of course, his successor, Deng Xiaoping, eventually chose a whole set of new ideas that refreshed the mandate and, you know, kind of basically saved the party and made it live to fight another day. 
one way to think of Chinese history is this interplay, this push and pull between a Confucian political tradition and practices and a legalist political tradition and practices. Mao, of course, did not like the Confucians, uh, but uh, liked the legalists. And I wonder if we're, we're seeing um, a push in, in favor of legalism today in contemporary China as rights seem to be more restricted, the state seems to be more assertive, and there is a, a huge emphasis on punishment for those who do wrong. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's an interpretation that I've heard, and some people in particular refer to the legalist, you know, philosopher Han Fei, Han Fei Zhe. Um, and in fact, reading his work, there's a very good translation, actually, of the classical text by the American scholar Burton Watson, which I'd encourage listeners to read to, uh, uh, listeners to read. Uh, you know, Han Fei's sort of stark vision of power you know, as the leader who can't trust anyone, who must be isolated, who must always be wary even of people who look like they're his allies, you know, a world completely stripped of trust where you just control everything. Uh, I mean, in a sense, we do see that in contemporary China because the leadership held have, have the technology now to, you know, control more than ever did before. Um, and I think this is one of the problems that this sort of legalist philosophy means that an approach to dealing with a very, very sensitive issue like Xinjiang and the repression of uh, Uyghur, uh, you know, kind of um, Muslim groups there. Um, you know, in the past, China would not have been able to really repress as much as it has, but it has the technology to do this, artificial intelligence, face recognition, and all sorts of other things. So, you know, it's kind of really a question of whether this is the intention that China has, but the principles that it behaves by in its domestic politics, I mean, you do get these very brutal and severe outcomes. Um, I think, you know, in the past, uh, there's been attempts to use softer, as you said earlier, people-based philosophy. At the moment, though, I think the strategic objective is to get to sustainable one-party rule. And to do that, you need to do whatever you need to. And that may need, you know, crushing of any dissent ensuring absolute loyalty in the party, in the media, in the military, and absolutely maintaining rigid focus on the objective. Once you've achieved that objective of one party sustainable rule, maybe you'll see a different aspect of the party power. Legalism will kind of disappear into the background. But all this shows, I think, that you know the Chinese have enormous intellectual resources in their long history of written texts, and they can pretty much draw on anything they want uh, it's one of the great kind of resources of any culture in the world. And it's one that no one can really engage much without, you know, with China, with it, without sort of really having to think through some of the issues of what these different texts uh, propose. If I could follow up on that, maybe put the question starkly. Is Xi Jinping a new first emperor? No, I mean, I think the new first emperor was Mao Zedong. Uh, I mean, and Xi Jinping is a worthy successor of Mao Zedong in the sense that he is faithfully carrying out the great mission, which is to create a strong, powerful country. I think Xi Jinping um, is in charge of a country that is far stronger and more powerful than that which, uh, you know, kind of Mao Zedong was in charge of. But I don't think that uh, Xi Jinping is a new Mao. 
um, the Communist Party of China is the new emperor. The Communist Party of China is, you know, the first, middle and last emperor. It's meant to be the kind of final governance model that China uh, wants. Um, that's the vision. And Xi Jinping, for all the powers attributed to him, and yes, he's enormously powerful, but his power comes from that source. You know, it's not about him as an individual. It's about him serving that vision and ideal. And I think once you kind of get that in, in, in mind, a lot of what he does and a lot of what his government do make sense. It's not about a person. It's about a huge, holistic, national vision. So you would expect him to step down at some point in the future then? Yeah, I mean, I think it's unlikely he's going to do it in the normal time frame, of, you know, next year. It's just not going to happen. There's no successes in sight. But I think um, it would be a, a problem similar to Russia, you know, and Putin, if he kind of got stuck there. Um, he's now six, 70, I think he's um, 70, maybe 70 this year, um, 71. Um, so, yeah, he can kind of obviously be in power for a long time. I mean, in theory, I mean, like Deng Xiaoping or Jiang Zemin, he could live into his 90s. But I think it would be a huge failure for there not to be some kind of succession in the next decade. Um, and that's still twice as long as, you know, the period in power of Hu Jintao. But we have to remember that Jiang Zemin was in power for, you know, 1989 to 2000, 2002. So that was 13 years. Having undefined sort of, you know, periods is not unusual in, in, in contemporary China. Hmm. I want to turn the discussion a bit towards the Chinese military because many of my listeners will be military and they want to understand what's going on in the PLA. And really my first question is, does the PLA run itself? No, absolutely not. Um, there's been times in the past when it's had a lot of autonomy. And in many ways, because Mao Zedong, you know, was the military leader and the PLA was the party's military wing, uh, you know, it had an enormous amount of autonomy because he was the leader of the military who then became a civilian political leader. So it's, that's the way his career went. Um, under Xi Jinping, he had a brief military career about, uh, you know, 40 years ago. He is regarded as someone who understands the Chinese military, that the military in China have the same strategic objective as the party, and that is to make one party rule sustainable. And the military are also, uh, you know, the armed wing of the Communist Party. So they are highly integrated. And the Central Military Commission, which uh, Xi Jinping chairs, that's where every major decision is made. Um, the party absolutely controls the military in China. And I think after recent purges uh, under the anti-corruption you know campaign um it's it's kind of hold over the over the um uh, people's liberation army has has i think never been stronger and, and more in intimate so explain this to me the central military commission only has one civilian correct the chairman and the chairman mm. is chairman of everything correct and so chairman of everything obviously cannot follow in great detail what's going on at the Central mm. Military Commission, much less lower levels. So where is the party? The party is in a system of political commissars that are absolutely everywhere in the military. 
um, in the general headquarters and in the kind of main, I think it's six military regions, six, no, I think it's gone down to four now, four military regions. Um, it's right down to the most basic level. Uh, and it's in the incredible amount of time spent on indoctrination and ideology training. Um, military figures of any seniority have to be party members and their party membership is their prime loyalty. And so they are absolutely trained and indoctrinated into the party ideology, which they have to serve. So in a sense, you know, the fact that it's got a civilian leader in the Central Military Commission, but all the rest are military figures, is um, not that significant because it basically every single um, significant military figure in China is a well-indoctrinated, well-trained Communist Party member. Is there anything that you wish beyond that point um, the United States military understood or appreciated about China's military or national security bureaucracy? I think there's two things. The first is that China's geography is intrinsically unstable. I mean, its border with 14 countries is the most complicated in the world. It is not a good neighborhood. It's got North Korea, it's got India, it's got Pakistan, it's got Afghanistan, it's got Russia, it's got Vietnam, Myanmar, Thailand. This is not a good neighborhood. So it's not surprising that the Chinese leadership are extremely aware of unwanted risks and also of disruption. They have a history of this and it goes back hundreds, well, thousands of years. And I think also an associated point is to remember that the Chinese domestic landscape is very prone to risk and disruption. Natural calamities like earthquakes, floods, you know, and of course climate change has made these even more dramatic. So you're, re you're dealing with a country that has every reason to be paranoid and therefore often is paranoid. I mean, that's just the kind of environment that China exists in. I think the second critical thing to remember is that the Communist Party of China is often, you know, kind of called out as the one that causes the problems. But I think that for Chinese people, their desire for security and stability means that they do buy into the party vision. You know, they're pragmatic. I think many of them probably have a private view, which is maybe more sympathetic to Western ideas of, you know, liberalization and more freedom. But I think also they are very aware that uh, their government is giving them stability and it's also making them, yeah, kind of respected on the global stage. And it's no good just ranting and railing at the Communist Party. I mean, they are proxy in this. Uh, you know, they're not really the ones that are driving it. The nationalism comes from Chinese people. And you can say that that is something stirred up by the party. But I mean, Chinese people are, uh, you know, very, very able to see uh, manipulations like anyone else. And um, I think that they do want this, you know, kind of sense of nationalism. I think it's a very popular thing and it actually gives Xi Jinping his legitimacy in front of Chinese people. And I think the um, final thing is this sort of sense that there's a, a inevitability for Chinese people about uh, their kind of um, moment of renaissance and resurrection, you know, after their very tough modern history being something that they're morally entitled to. You know, this is not something the West can come along and say, you know, you've got to kind of just keep in your box and 
look, you know, this is not um, going to work for everyone. You, you know, you just sort of scale your ex aspirations down. I, I mean, I think Chinese people um, believe fervently and, and sincerely that they deserve this moment. You know, that that they're kind of you know rising to be world's sort of number two and now maybe even number one economically. This is something that you know is a just return for the suffering that you know has been part of Chinese history for the last hundred and fifty years. So, in the words of uh, you know the poet William Butler Yeats, I would say you know tread softly on China's uh, you know um, tread softly on China because you, you know you tread on its dreams. You don't want to kind of disrupt its dreams um, because these are things that are fundamental to Chinese people's sense of identity and their own kind of you know feeling of who they are. And, you know, I think it's understandable that China is a disruptive power and a difficult power to engage with. There are many challenges and many of our concerns are legitimate. But we do have to understand that China also has its reasons for doing what it's doing a lot of the time. And if we understand those, maybe we can engage and think about them and think about we should be worried and stop worrying about places where we really shouldn't be worried or worrying won't help us. We'll bring this to a close, but one quick follow-up on that. You, you warned Western countries to be careful about disrupting China's dream. I think one question is, is China disrupting its own dream, though? It, your comments reminded me of this essay by Zhu Shongrun, um, the, now a dissident, but formerly a prestigious professor at Tsinghua University. And in 2012, he wrote this essay, China's Moment in World History. I don't know if you've seen this essay, but it's a marvelous um, analysis of, of the travails of China in the past and how these have mm -hmm. finally been overcome and China is grasping for its moment and the West needs to accept this. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's very much in line with the sort of narrative you just gave. And yet, um, Professor Xu is a dissident today. So, so the question is what happened, right? Yeah, I mean, so figures like Professor Xu and uh, there have been others have, I suppose, fallen the wrong side of the political debate in China. I mean, I think uh, some of them have been associated with, you know, trying to sort of support federalism, Western liberalism, and these are absolutely not accepted now. Can China disrupt its own dream? I mean, that has always been the problem before, you know, this sort of tantalizing possibilities when China was close to sort of, you know, really breaking out of the historic mold and, you know, becoming something new. And in a sense, 1949 was part of that, you know, great process. And I think the great um, thing to remember about under Xi Jinping is that this sort of historic pattern seems to be broken now. It means, you know, China can be the winner. And I think, you know, in a lot of the uh, sort of previous events, China was always the loser, you know, the sick person of Asia, as it was called um, in the 30s and then actually in a, a Wall Street Journal article last year, which irritated the Chinese leadership massively. You know, the idea that it was always going to screw up, it was always going to kind of, you know, collapse into turmoil. And I think, you know, until recently, that was true. There were always things like the culture revolution, the famines, you know, the uprising in 89 seemed to be a place that was perpetually kind of stumbling. But I think under Xi Jinping, all of that may be changing. And I think the Chinese people now believe they're winners. And as we know from playing, you know, baseball or basketball, if you believe you're a winner, then you're probably going to start winning. And, you know, China is starting to, you know, um, 
chalk up some significant wins. Uh, if it is going to make a mistake, I think that will be about maybe misjudging the geopolitical situation and going for something like Taiwan to resolve and trying to resolve that. And then it will be a complete calamity because I think it still has to face a world that is uncomfortable with this extraordinary reality that we see now of a capitalist, you know, kind of, uh, you know, a kind of very successful capitalist being a communist country. This is something that's deeply unsettling. And I think China would not want to be complacent about how disruptive that is for the world and how much uh, it needs to do to reassure the world that this is not a much, much more threatening situation than it already appears. Dr. Brown, do you have a new book? Do we have something coming out that we can look forward uh, to? I do. I, I do have a book on um, Western or European views of China in the last 800 years. Uh, that will come out later this year. It's excerpts of great figures like Montesquieu, Leibniz, Voltaire, Marx, um, Hegel, Bertrand Russell, um, uh, and then, you know, more contemporary figures. Um, and it's kind of giving their views of China. Some of them visited, some of them wrote about China from afar. But I think it just sort of basically shows the same problems have long existed in uh, European history, and I assume American history, of the division between those who see China as a place which is an alternative and something to observe and look at and kind of have distance from, but, you know, be appreciative of, and those who feel that it is profoundly problematic and actually a kind of threat or, you know, a kind of problem for Westerners and Western Enlightenment values. So I, I've really enjoyed getting these excerpts together and showing that the problems we wrestle with today have, alas, been around for many hundreds of years. Thank you, Dr. Brown. It's been a privilege to have you today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indo-Pacific Affairs. We hope you enjoyed the interview. Please help us by leaving your comments in the Discuss section in this page or on our Twitter feed at journal underscore Indo. You can also interact with us on the Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs Facebook and LinkedIn sites.